Amen. Well, let's uh, turn back to First uh, Peter, and I suppose if there is a key uh, little passage in this, it's verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. But uh, back end of last year, we were looking at First uh, Peter chapter 1 and 2 together, and, and I'd kind of like to share a message from one of Peter's major themes uh, in the letter, which is uh, very much an encouragement to persevere in times of trouble or hardships, especially in suffering for Christ. And um, in Hatfield, actually, this was one of three messages we were looking at uh, just in, in, in coming back to First Peter because we had a Christmas break and, you know, various other things happen. And I just wanted to be remind, just to remind our folks of some of those uh, key themes of the letter. Why persevere? And uh, we had uh, three thoughts from Peter, and this is the third of those. So uh, this evening, why should we persevere? One of Peter's reasons is this, because we are God's special people. We're God's holy people, his precious people. Right there in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. I just want to, we're going to just draw out uh, some motivation from this this evening, Lord willing. Well, as a teenager, um, Prince Charles, you may remember, attended Gordonstone School in Scotland. And if you remember that, uh, I know that's probably a generation or so back, but uh, he hated it there. If you uh, uh, did a look at his biography or his comments from from timing boarding school, and if you were here on that fish and chip night, you know I went to a boarding school too, and I didn't get on very well there either. I hated it too. It wasn't Gordonstone, but anyway. But I, I think there's something that we can uh, know for certain about uh, Prince Charles when he was there at school. I suspect that behind the scenes, he was most likely told that whether he enjoyed it or not, he needed to put his head down keep out of trouble and do his best. Because if he was to do the opposite and get in trouble and drop out of school or there'd be uh, all kinds of problems kick off, because of who he was, the eyes of the world were going to be upon him, weren't they? Um, you and me can probably mess up in school and, and it doesn't, make, doesn't hit the headlines. But if Prince Charles messed up in school, it's going to hit the headlines, isn't it? Why is that? It's because of his family, who his family was, and so on. And so as a result of his connection to them, he had to persevere, didn't he? He had to put his head down, he had to keep his nose clean, as it were, and do the best he could. And I suppose if we see that something like that is true in life, you know, there's, we mentioned Prince Charles, but there could be any many other famous, notable people. And it must be difficult for their sons and daughters to grow up knowing that they are in the limelight, as it were. Anything that they do can end up, uh, you know, in the, these days in social media, isn't it? As well as on the front of newspapers and, and other places. And if we, if we can recognize that uh, as a result of a family connection there, there's reasons to, to uh, persevere, then we can recognize, I think, that... that um, how much more true is that when we have been born into God's family? And Peter talks about us being born into God's family. He talks about us being 
born again, doesn't he? In chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 23 as well. Having been born again. How, how, well, this is a new birth, but it's a new birth that, that kind of joins us to God's family, isn't it? Isn't it? It's, it's almost like we take on a new surname, don't we? The Lord's name. And people know that if we are Christians and that we call upon God as our Father, which we do, that there's going to be an expectation that we're not going to lie and cheat or steal or be stubborn uh, and that we're going to uh, not be a quitter either. The expectation is that we're going to persevere and do our best. Why? Because it would bring shame upon our Heavenly Father not to live up to our name. And remember how Peter describes the people he is writing to and which applies so very much to us today. In chapter 1, verse 2, then I'm, I'm reading from my more familiar New King James here, but he describes the people of God as elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect, that means chosen, doesn't it? You and me, if we know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, so, you know, you've, you've probably heard that, that saying that, you know, as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's almost like there's, a, there's a, a, a sign over the door saying, come, believe in the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, you know, enter in and you shall be saved. And, and we, we, we trust and we enter in, don't we? And we look back at the door and it says over it, elect from before the foundation of the world. And we find it difficult to, to marry up those two things. But the truth of the word of God is, that God has chosen you and me to be one of his people. And together, we are the people of God, aren't we? In chapter 2 and verse 4 and 5, as he describes who we are as God's chosen people, he says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, that's you and me, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's saying here, we are God's chosen people. Just as much as Israel of old was God's chosen people, a chosen nation out of all the nations, so that uh, was an image in the Old Testament which, which finds its fulfillment in the new, in, in us, the people of God, gathered from all of the nations to be his people, a new people, a holy and glorious living temple made up of people built on Christ the cornerstone. What an interesting picture he paints there. And, and why are we God's people uh, uh, put together to be this living temple? It's that we might be purified and privileged to offer up acceptable sacrifices to God through Christ. So just as we might look back and remember how God was served through those sacrifices and the priestly service right there in the temple, he's saying, he's saying God has called you and me to just as much serve him and give him glory and bring him praise and uh, offer up sacrifices, as it were, uh, through Christ to his great uh, honour. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Those are phrases there in chapter 2, verse 9. 
saved from darkness and brought into his light. We're the recipients of his great mercy, he says there in verse 10, in order that we might proclaim his praises and fulfill his purposes. So it's unthinkable then that we would not want to persevere for the Lord in difficult circumstances. You know, and those difficult circumstances will come, won't they? And we, when they come, we, we so easily want to be a quitter. But no, we need to persevere. We need to continue. Why? Because we are God's special people. We're the people of God. And I, I want us to, to see three important reasons as the people of God we're called to persevere this evening. Firstly, because of the grace God has given us. The grace God has given us. The great salvation, this word salvation occurs in verses 9 and 10, uh, in particular here in um, verses 5 and 9 and 10. The great salvation that Peter says was promised there in the old, that the prophets looked into and that they proclaimed in oblique ways and so on, that promised salvation, which was the promise of eternal life. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me, Jesus said. You know, the, the promise of the scripture, God's promise, having condemned us to death, is that you look to me and I will give you life, you see. And all of that is bound up in salvation. But notice in verse 10, I'm not quite sure how it puts it in there. Let's see how it puts it in there. But in mind, it says, of this salvation, the prophets who inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. He summarizes God's salvation as grace to you. The grace that would come to you. How does it put it in... Um, in here in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. The grace that was to be yours. You see that phrase? So he summarizes salvation as God's grace to you and to me. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You know, when God dealt with Israel of old, he said to them this through Moses in Deuteronomy 7 verse 7. The Lord has not set his love upon you, nor choose, chose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of peoples. Indicating that God didn't choose them because there was anything particularly special about them or unique about them as a nation or because they are numerous or anything like that. And in fact, in an even more graphic way, excuse me, he says this to them from Ezekiel chapter 16. An unusual passage. Um, but Ezekiel 16 says this. I'm just going to read from verses 1 to 6. This is, this is how the Lord saw Israel, as it were, before he chose them, before he worked in them. Um, Ezekiel 16, of course, this is much later on in time when through the prophet God is rebuking his uh, people for their sin it says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, 
On the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, you were, uh, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor swathed in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your own blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. That is a graphic picture there, isn't it? We can picture a little one just born, you know, uh, umbilical cords not being cut. It's, it, it's a bloody messy kind of sight. Those of you who have been there, you, you know about that kind of a thing. And, but here's a baby that's unloved, unwashed, unkept, just cast out. You were nothing, he says. You were absolutely nothing. There was nothing in you that should commend you to me. But I walked by and I turned and I said, live. And I caused you to live. And I've given you life and I've given you everything that you've ever had, he says. And that's what the chapter goes on to say and to tell them off for why they've gone after other gods. But is it any different to us today it was God's grace in choosing them, Israel, wasn't it? There was nothing special in them that he should choose them. And it is no different for us today. It is just sheerly and purely by God's grace that you and me have been chosen for eternal salvation. And those are just words that I speak. And, and we, we, you know, those are words, aren't they? But one day those words will be a reality, a wonderful reality. Alan just spoke earlier. He, 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 his wife is already in that reality. It would be unfair to recall her from that reality. He's only got one hope, and that is to go and join her in that glorious reality, isn't it? But for us now, they're just words. Eternal, glory, presence of the Lord, marriage supper of the Lamb. They're just words, and we, we struggle to capture that vision of the future that the Lord has given for us. What would be the future of that little one left there perishing in its blood? Nothing. It would, it would last minutes, hours maybe, wouldn't it? And, and it would die of exposure, except the Lord would come along and say, live. And that's, that's you and me, isn't it? Keep your finger there in Peter. But see how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, because it's the same kind of a thought. This is us. It's no different Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. Let me read it to you. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the cause of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This is, this is who we were. We weren't even alive to God. It's like we were dead to God, dead in trespasses and sins. We, we lived just according to passions and pleasures. We did the, dim, the, the devil's work and the demon's work, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who works and the sons of disobedience and that. We didn't do God's work. We weren't doing God's will. There was nothing good in us that he saw that he thought, oh, Alan, he's going to be wonderful. Oh, Christian, she's going to be beautiful. No, he, there's nothing in us to commend us to God. But God, who is rich in mercy 
because of his great love with which he loved us, just because he had chosen to set his love upon us, when we were dead in trespasses, came past and said, live, didn't he? He says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a wonderful thing that, that it is that we've received the grace of God. And he has raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, not just for a day, but in the eons and ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul, he's starting to lose adjectives here, isn't he? You know, his exceeding kindness and grace and mercy and love and so on. He's using all of these uh, nouns and all of these descriptions of, of all of how the character of God and his wonder has been, has been directed at you and me who are so undeserving. And yet, he called us to be his special people, didn't he? He called us to be a chosen people. <laughs> more so perhaps than ever Israel of old was. And Peter goes on to say, we're called to be a priestly people, a holy people, a distinctive people, set apart for God, a people set apart for God to proclaim his glory and praises. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, Here's the purpose that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were not a people, but now are the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You know that grace and mercy, don't you? Mercy is to not receive what we deserve. We deserve punishment. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We deserve the wrath of God upon us. But God in his mercy has prevented us from receiving that. Grace is to receive what we don't deserve, isn't it? It's the kind of opposite. And we don't deserve anything from God. And yet he has chosen us and called us to be saved and together to be his wonderful people. And so our gratefulness for that new undeserved position, which is all by grace and all through God's mercy, is to motivate us, isn't it? To persevere and to live for God through the hardships that come for him. And that typically means when we come to a crunch decision or a crossroads in our life, that we have to put the will of God first over our own will. And we have to seek to please God rather than please ourselves. You see, he didn't save us that we might just live on in our own pleasures. He didn't save us that we might just do whatever we want in life. He saved us that we might be to the praise of his glory, that we might do what he's called us to do in life. And so there's times in life, isn't there, when, when you know, the hardship comes and we could buckle, we could turn, we could decide, oh, I'll keep my mouth shut. It's much easier that way. But no, we're called to persevere because that's what God would will us to do. We're called to be bold and courageous, to stand up for the truth. Sometimes we need to do that in our workplace or, or, or in our college or amongst friends and so on. Because to do anything other is to deny the truth of what God is willing to do for, for people who will look to him and we've looked to him and he saved us and we didn't deserve all this. 
and see what Christ did in dying for us. And so we, we, we must persevere. We must do God's will rather than please ourselves. Now, of course, this is quite contrary to the way the world thinks, isn't it? For, for most people, this life and this world is simply about the pursuit of personal happiness. Do whatever you, you want, whatever makes you happy. You know, most people in life are just wanting to be happy, aren't they? Uh, in, in whatever ways, simple ways in life that, that makes them happy. We might ask ourselves then, what is the goal of the Christian? Is it the same goal or is it different? Is the goal of the Christian to be happy? And I'm going to say yes, no. It is ultimately, but maybe that is not to be our immediate focus for now. And I'll explain it in this way. It's often said, isn't it, that the Christian's objective in this life is holiness rather than happiness. And that is right. That's a good, good principle to hold on to, that God is working in my life, not, not for happiness in the present necessarily, but for holiness. That's where, if the choice comes, you know, sometimes to, to make that holy choice is to deny your personal pleasure and happiness of the moment, isn't it? Because we have to fight against that sin that wars within us. He speaks about that, chapter 2, verse 11. And so um, much as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says here about us being God's people and so on, the Westminster Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God, isn't it? But that's not all that it says. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What's the goal of man? What is the goal of, of my life? It's not my personal happiness. It's for the glory of God. But he joins to that, or the catechism joins to that, and to enjoy him forever. Because to find your happiness in God is ultimately the great goal of happiness, isn't it? We're not going to find happiness by, by, uh, by seeking it out in this way. You know, happiness isn't in getting a caravan and going camping and going to all those places that you wish that you'd been to as a young person. You know, it might be a lovely thing to do, but it's not going to be your ultimate happiness. It's going to chuck it down for rain, for sure, you know. Uh, you know, our happiness... We, you know, we, we get married, we, 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 ha we love our spouse, our husband, our wife, and so on. But do I need to tell you that, that married life and family life is not always wonderful and happy every step of the way, is it? You know, there is a happiness there, there's a security there, there's a love there, but it's also a rocky road, isn't it? As two people kind of come together. It's not, it's not easy. And so that can't be our ultimate happiness because... We get older and things change and so on. Our, our ultimate happiness isn't in pursuing personal pleasures. It, it's, it's in pursuing our likeness to God and becoming like him. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Chapter 1, verse 16. Why should this be our, 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 our uh, pursuit in the present? Because in pursuing holiness, God knows we will ultimately find our greatest happiness. Because anything that rests solely on people or things or experiences in this world and in this life, it can never be lasting for the simple reason that everything in this world is passing and temporary. But when our life is made new in Christ and we seek to be like him, it's going to ultimately result in a state of eternal 
happiness, isn't it? Not one found in the present, but one found in the future when we shall be raised in glory and presented faultless before his throne with exceeding what? With exceeding joy. That's the happy day which we press towards, isn't it? It's not in this world, but at God's right hand that the Bible says there's pleasures forevermore. In this world, those pleasures forevermore are more likely to entice us to go astray. And so for now, we have to set pleasure aside and pursue holiness without which no one shall see the Lord because in the pursuit of holiness, we will ultimately come to be presented faultless before the Lord. And that's where we will find our happiness. So does the Christian pursue happiness? In a sense, yes, but only as the ultimate end of our journey as we struggle against sin. And beginning with the grace of salvation and continuing with the grace of sanctification in our lives. We're going to one day see him and we're going to be like him and that's when we'll find our ultimate joy, won't we? But this doesn't mean following Christ is a drudgery. I'm not saying that that the Christian life has all got to be stiff upper lip and sober spirit and sober mind and there's no joy in it. Far from it. Just as God pours out his love in our hearts by his spirit, so the fruit of the spirit is joy, isn't it? And, And one of the curious things is that we discover that actually pursuing the things of God can cause us to be more happy than whenever we did our own will in the first place. That actually that led to a kind of a temporary happiness that was unsatisfying. I only have to look back in my own life. And one of the wonderful things about being converted was to realize that I could be happy without having to be drugged up to my eyeballs. And it was a wonderful liberation, that. Because the world just seemed to kind of press you into this mold that you'd you'd got to take all this stuff in order to be happy, to be high, to be happy and joyful. And no, you, you know, give me a drink and... I'll just fall asleep in the corner these days. I'm much more myself without it. And that's how it should be, isn't it? To find our happiness in the Lord himself. See what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 8. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not yet see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, he says. He says, uh, you're suffering, you're having to persevere and you're suffering. And going, but I can see something. I can see that glory on your brow. I can see, I can hear the, the song of hallelujah from your lips because God has visited you with, with his salvation. And you know it's, it's, this suffering is for now and it's not forever. And you know the Lord Jesus is coming. And you know you've been delivered from sin. And so uh, you are rejoicing even in your hardships. And that is why the Christian is to persevere, isn't it? We do so not just with a harumph and a stiff upper upper lip, but with a hallelujah and a joyful spirit in the face of trials and tribulations. Peter puts it this way in chapter 4, verse 13. But we rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know, there's a joy in the Christian life even when we do have to persevere through hardships in the present because we've got our eyes on the end of all things, haven't we? We persevere 
because we're God's special people. We bear his name. We shine forth his nature. And in doing so, we will ultimately find our greatest happiness too. When we, when we rise, we shall be like him in that world to come. Matthew Henry put it this way in speaking about the, the life of a pilgrim, that pilgrimage journey from Psalm 84. Um, he, he talks about this that the pilgrim, having placed their happiness in God as their end, they rejoice in all the ways that lead to him. Let me say that again. Having placed their happiness in God as their end, they rejoice in all the ways that lead to him. The pilgrim, the people of God, suffering in the present, uh, have, their, have their happiness ahead, not in not in the things here, but in God. God is their end. Our happiness is there with him. And so in the present, we can rejoice in all the ways that lead to him. And some of those ways are troubled ways, aren't they? They're troubled waters. They're difficult paths. But what grace that he should choose us to be on that way to eternal glory. God doesn't promise that the journey is going to be easy. Far from it. He says we're pilgrims in a foreign land. It's going to be a tough trek in the wilderness, isn't it? You're going to have to persevere. It's like there's a fight going on. You're going to have to arm yourselves. There's going to be hardships. But God has chosen you to be on the way. And we're on the way to glory. And we're on the way to be with him. What great grace. Grace that not only saves us, but keeps us all the way through too. We're looking forward, aren't we, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, for you who are kept, guarded in the ESV, by the power of God through faith. God has given you grace, hasn't he, in saving you. He's given you grace in giving you a future, and he's given you grace in that he's going to keep you and me on that journey as well. So why do we persevere as the people of God? It's because of the great grace given to us. Secondly, we persevere because of the good that God wants us to do. So not only grace, but the good as well. And uh, chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12 is probably key to this. So Peter sets out here a kind of strategy for Christians in time of hardship. If you're facing conflict and difficulties and so on, he says this, Beloved, excuse me. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, those passing through, those on that pilgrimage journey, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honourable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And we could boil down his... Um, his strategy here is this. To, he says, you as a Christian, you're facing some tough times. There's difficulties there. Here's what you need to do. Abstain from evil. Guard your tongue, he says here. Guard what you say. Abstain from evil. Uh, abstain from, abstain from uh, evil. Do good and trust God for the outcome. What are we supposed to do? Don't do evil. Do good. Trust God for the outcome. And we're reminded constantly in Peter that we are to do good. 
He says uh, in chapter 3 and uh, uh, verses 10 to 11, uh, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Don't do evil. And he speaks from his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Or verse 13 of chapter 3. And who is he who will calm you if you become followers of what? Of what is good. If you're doing good, are they going to punish you for doing good? No, they're they're not, he says. Or chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We're called then to turn away from evil and do good in our world, in good times and bad, and to good people and bad also. And so, you know, just as God says, be ye holy for I am holy, in chapter 1, verse 16, it might just as easily or rightly say, uh, God might just as easily say, be good for I am good, or be patient for I am patient, or be kind for I am kind. And why is it that the Lord calls us to persevere in hardships Why is it that we must love our enemies and bless those who curse us and do good to those who hate us and pray for those who persecute us? Matthew 5, 44. It's so that we might be like our Father, isn't it? Our Heavenly Father. Isn't that what comes directly after that in Matthew 5? I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Next verse, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's saying there for us to do good just like our Heavenly Father, to live in accord with his name, live knowing that you've got his name and nature within you, like Father, like Son, is the thought there, isn't it? That you may be like sons of your father. So we're called to do good, aren't we? This is why we must persevere. You know, when, when, when the troubles come, we just want to quit. That's, the, that's, you know, I've had enough of this. You know, I didn't know it was going to be so hard. I, I'm going to duck out. I'm going to keep my head down, kind of thing. That's, that's our kind of normal way, isn't it? Or, you know, the world kind of thumps us, and it doesn't take perseverance to thump back, does it? You know, if, if we get thumped, we just want to thump back. That's just nature, isn't it? If the world curses us, we just want to curse back. That's just automatic, automatic, isn't it? But it does take perseverance, doesn't it, to return blessing for cursing, prayer for persecution, love for hatred. And Peter says, this is what we are called to. Chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, is what he says. We were called to do good. And that's why we've got to persevere. Because God has called us to be salt and light in this world, hasn't he? To, to, To make a difference. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, with good. Absolutely. And he also says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it is the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. 
So here is the world doing all of its wicked things, persecuting Christians, being hatred, hateful towards us and so on. We could just match the world in its own spirit. But the Lord says, no, we've got to return blessing for cursing. We've got to return kindness for hatred. We've got to, got to do good even when they're evil towards us. Why? Because God is at work in that good. That's precisely how he's treated us and he's calling us to be like him, to be supernatural, as it were. And that's difficult, isn't it? But we must persevere to do that because it's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. It's often through the acts of undeserved human kindness, through the hands of God's people, that God shows his goodness to sinful people. And good can come out of it, can't it? So we persevere because we're called as God's special people to do good and for the good that may yet come of it. And I'm sure if you know your Ephesians 2 where he talks about grace, being saved by grace through faith and so on, that little passage there ends, doesn't it? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He needs us to persevere because he wants us to be people who will return good to the world and leaving it in God's hands, trust him for the outcome. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a kid's... Uh, kids, do any of you guys know the donut man, Rob Evans? He's got a great little song. Isn't he? You know his little song? Never, 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 never become tired of doing good. 2 Thessalonians 3.13. Do you know that one? You got that thing? No, you're just saying you don't know. But yeah, he's got some, some, some lovely little songs there. But yeah, it's 2 Thessalonians 3.13. Never, do-do, never, do-do, never, 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 never become tired of doing good. Become tired of doing good. 2 Thessalonians 3.13. You know, let it drive into you. We must never grow weary, is what the Bible says, of doing good. Because good can come of it. And the Lord calls us to persevere, doesn't he? The Lord himself had to persevere in doing good against all that opposition that he faced in this world, didn't he? Okay, time's moving on. Thirdly, lastly, not such a long point. Thirdly, we persevere for the glory of honouring Christ. Okay, so if you're jotting down here, we've got the grace of God as a reason that for doing good is a reason. And thirdly, for the glory of honouring Christ at his coming. It's been said that uh, Paul is the apostle of faith and John the apostle of love and Peter is the apostle of hope. And in his letters, he reminds us of that glorious hope uh, in a number of ways, a number of verses, which will coincide with the appearing of Christ. So, for instance, chapter 1, uh, verse 5, he says this, We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There's something coming. There's someone coming. There's a wonderful revelation that's going to happen in the future. Keep your eyes upon that, he says. In chapter uh, 1, verse 13, at the end, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I thought we'd already received all of God's grace. No, there's, there's yet more grace to come to us. When? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. In chapter 4 and verse 13, 
But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. His glory is going to be revealed, and when it is, that's going to be our day of great joy. Chapter 5 and verse 10. There are others in this letter, but here's just a few. But may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, We've been called to his eternal glory. How? By Christ Jesus. After you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. He's saying persevere because remember, there's eternal glory ahead. That's what he's saying, isn't he? And so for that reason, we've got to bear with the present sufferings and hardships because there's a coming day when all of that Pain and hardship and difficulty and so on is going to be swallowed up in glory and victory and praise. I just want to read to you a little section from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 10 to 12 as well, because Paul uh, highlights some similar things here. It says here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10, When he comes in that day to be glorified, to be glorified how? In his saints the people of God, and to be admired, admired, how? Among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says that Christ comes to be glorified among his saints on that great day. And in fact, Paul mentions there both grace and doing good and the glory as well that's going to come. Ultimately, glory for Christ. And that's to spur us to persevere and continue. They say uh, at the opera, it's not all over until the fat lady sings. I don't quite understand that, but I guess at the opera there's usually someone who belts it out at the end with a kind of closing song. But, you know, it's not all over in this world until the Lord descends from the heavens with a shout and with the trumpet of God. That's the day, isn't it? That's going to be a day of calamity for the unprepared. Paul speaks of that in chapter 1, verse 9 of that Thessalonians section there that we, just, that we just read. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. That's going to be a day of calamity for the unprepared. But for us, it will be a glorious day, a day of resurrection and reunion with Christ and his people, a day of reward, a day in which he will be glorified in us and us in him, Paul says here, doesn't he? And so we're to keep that on our horizon, aren't we? That is our goal. That's what we need to focus on in the present if we're to persevere, isn't it? For who is it that Christ will be glorified among on that day? It's us, his special people. That's why we must persevere because you and me are the people that he is gathering out of this world to be presented one day faultless before his throne with exceeding joy it says, and that he might be honoured amongst us, his people. Well, 
Why would we struggle to make our marriages work? Why should we persevere to walk with the Lord? Why should we endure troubles from the world as a Christian? Why, might, why shouldn't we just give up? Well, we mustn't because as God's people, great grace has been given to us. We mustn't because as God's people, he calls us to do good in this world. Overcome evil with good. We must persevere because of the glory he's going to bring about in us and through us on that last day. So, beloved, press on, yeah? Press on and persevere. Don't lose sight of our wonderful hope in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It kind of ought to give shape to the present when we face hardships. Lord, you know uh, perhaps the difficulties that some amongst the gathering here might be experiencing. But Lord, we pray that uh, sight of that future hope of the grace given to us, of the good we might now do, of the glory that there will yet be, Lord, that that might uh, cause us to have the mind to persevere and the power and the spirit and the joy to do so in the present, striving against sin, striving against evil, striving against our own uh, inward wrongs, Lord, that we might uh, be more like you, uh, holy, set apart to you, in that uh, will be our greatest joy, to one day be like you for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.